This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen weekdays from 10 o'clock on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on your Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode then, Rishi Sunak is in Washington, which you know because you listened to yesterday's podcast. So it's Deputy PMQs, Oliver Dowden versus Angela Rayner, and no Tim Shipman either. So we've got, well, essentially his deputy, Patrick McGuire here to pause the action to analyse the key exchanges in real time. And Lara Spirit will round up the best of the rest. But first... We kick off with today's columnists. The columnists on Times Radio. Yes, and no Alibut today on a Wednesday. Uh, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton are off gallivanting. So instead, we are joined by, uh, for the Sunday Times, Hadley Freeman. Hi, Hadley. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Uh, very well, very well. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, and we've also got Times legend Oliver Cam. Oliver, how are you? Morning, Matt. I'm great, thank you. Very good, very good. Um, let's talk, first of all, about weight loss drugs. Story on the fact that the Times today, weight loss jabs bid to cut benefits bill. Thousands of obese people will be offered weight loss jabs in an NHS pilot scheme to assess whether a new generation of appetite-suppressing drugs can cut waiting lists and increase levels of employment. This is Steve Barkley, the health secretary, talking about it on Times Radio a bit earlier. I think there's a, an acceptance we need to use all the, the tools available. I, I think there's a recognition that obesity really causes health harm. Nine in ten uh, type 2 diabetics are overweight. The second biggest cause of cancer after smoking is obesity. Uh, around a million people are admitted to hospital a year as a consequence of obesity. Mm. So need to use the latest health medicines available. And, and mm. these drugs uh, really are at the forefront uh, globally of what is possible in terms of obesity. We want to make sure the NHS is at the front of the queue and that's why it's really exciting to okay. have these pilots and that's what we're launching today. Um, Hadley, what do you think of this? Is there an, a sort of a issue of personal responsibility when it comes to weight loss? Oh, but the, the, the so. government wrapping this up in a sort of economic thing, well, it's worth the money because if, if we can get all the fat people back to work, the economy will start growing. Uh, sorry for interrupting you there, Matt. Yeah. Um, I agree that um, 
I agree that yeah, basically I think that the issue of personal responsibility is kind of a horse that's bolted at this point. Politicians <laughs> can talk about that, but the fact is obesity rates are rising. Um, I agreed with a column that Janice Turner wrote in the Times a few weeks ago that there's this amazing irony that the food industry has spent so much money manufacturing foods, you know, what we call ultra processed foods that ostensibly act like cocaine and that you just want more of them and they don't fill you up. And now we have to manufacture something to stop us from eating them. Um, we're ostensibly creating a capitalist circle in that we make stuff that we then have to make more stuff to stop us from doing. Um, what do you think of this, uh, Oliver? Is it something that the, 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 the state should be intervening, paying for these drugs, essentially? Um, obviously, think well, there's, I suppose there's two, two economic benefits. People can get back to work, and that's a good thing. They also cost the NHS less in the longer run. Yes, you, you raise the economic issue. It's not um, outside the government's responsibility at all to address what is uh, a burgeoning obesity crisis. I mean, if you look at the figures for patients in England, NHS data suggests something like a quarter of adults in England are obese, not just overweight, but obese. And there is an economic issue here, which is that um, though... Um, the life expectancy of someone who is obese is uh, necessarily shorter and uh, the state will therefore not pay out pensions as a result. Nonetheless, the uh, strain on the health service is substantial and there is a cost in productivity. And as a straightforward economic matter, I'm not saying it's just an economic matter, but as a straightforward economic matter, there is a very strong argument for government intervention in taxation, uh, what's known as a Pigovian tax, something that taxes an activity um, that has negative externalities, that is, bad social, wider social effects. There's a very strong argument for it, and I'm in favour of interventions, both fiscal and in terms of encouragement and, um, and drug provision, to, to tackle the crisis. It is a crisis. It's, um, it's, it's not just a matter of uh, personal responsibility, let alone, which is a very bad thing, stigmatising those who are obese. We do have, as Hadley, as a society, as a country, we have such a peculiar relationship with food. Mm. Uh, about, you know, like you said, you've got the, the, the junk food industry uh, making people fatter, and then we need more sort of intervention uh, to deal with that. And we, we, we can't not discuss your, your extraordinary book came out, was it a couple of months? When was it? A couple of months ago? Month? Uh, in April, yeah. In April. Um, uh, a story, your, your story of anorexia, and again, our, you know, which is a, a, a sort of separate conversation, but also one we're not very good at dealing with, of eating disorders and, and uh, uh, you know, a completely different but difficult relationship with food. Yeah, it's hard to see how um, the government will stop people with disordered eating, whether it's anorexia or bulimia or binge eating, from abusing this drug if this drug becomes more widely yeah. available. Also, it's a very kind of eating disordered approach to eating. As you say, it's binging and starving is what we basically have in this country. It's encouraging people to eat as much as possible, constant adverts for food everywhere, and then take a shot to stop yourself eating the next day. Um, you know, it's like what we see with these 5-2 diets, eat as much on this day, eat as much as you want on this day and then don't eat the next day. Um, there's no sense of moderation, really. And humans are increasingly proving incapable of moderating themselves when they come to food. And I agree with Oliver, that's not about stigmatizing anybody. That is kind of the way the system is set up at this point. And what what can, because it's really, it's one of those things where changing the mindset of society is so much harder than changing, I don't know, tax levels or even deciding what you do and don't spend 
um, money on. How can you rewire a society, Hadley, where we've got sort of some people who eat too much and some people who don't eat enough in, in trying to tackle one one of those groups, you, you risk aggravating the other. Well, I've never really understood why we don't tax ultra-high sugar and ultra-high salt foods in the way that we tax alcohol and cigarettes, to be honest. I mean, it's just as bad for one's health. I'm sure Oliver can explain it to me. But that seems the most sensible approach. I mean, the reason that people uh, in certain socioeconomic groups find it harder to eat healthy is, of course, because junk food is cheaper than fresh fruit and vegetables. Um, and there would be a way that the government could help with that and also make money for itself. Uh, can you explain, <laughs> Oliver, I'm not holding you entirely responsible for society's <laughs> ills, but can you um, can you explain why we treat bad food differently to, you know, bad drink and, and, and smoking? Mm-hmm. Taxing, uh, uh, levying very high duties on alcohol and tobacco have a history, and they they have worked. Um, the, the the incidence of smoking in this country has fallen dramatically. It's not um, not been widely used as a as a as a strategy for foods that are high in saturated fats. There was one example in Denmark a little over a decade ago that was short lived, but that was more for political reasons than. Um, than, than efficacy. And I'm in favour of it. I'm in favour of applying uh, a, a punitive tax on foods that are very high in saturated fats. The, um, the sort of libertarian objection would be that's regressive against um, people who spend a substantial amount on, of their income on food. But it's, it's, not, a, it's not a tax on, um, uh, on lower income households. It's certainly not a tax on fat people. It's a tax on fatty foods to incentivize the consumption, uh, the relatively greater consumption of healthy foods. And I think there's a great deal in it. And also the government did the, the, the sugar tax, which saw in some cases, um, uh, you know, the reformulating of, of some fizzy drinks and others, if you buy a can of Diet Coke, it's a bit cheaper, I think, than if you buy full fat sugar. But I'm not sure if it's had a huge impact on the um, the health of the nation. It probably needs to be much more... Um, widespread. Well, we'll see. We'll see. They, they said there's a pilot. We'll see how they go on with that. Um, let's uh, let's move on and talk about Oxfam and this uh, this extraordinary video, Protect Pride video, uh, that went out before being um, well edited and taken down. Let's take a listen. How are you marking Pride Month this year? While LGBTQIA plus people around the world are deprived of basic safety, not protected by laws. Played on by hate groups online and offline. And so, in this uh, the video, there's lots of uh, people, um, uh, including when it says hate groups, there's a woman and two men pointing and laughing, and the woman is wearing a badge which has got turf uh, on it, T E R F, uh, and it's got red eyes, red hair, and a lined and angry face, which uh, lots of people have pointed out. It's not a million miles away from J.K. Rowling. Um, uh, Oxfam has said it made a mistake in trying to make an important point about the real harm caused by transphobia. Uh, I mean, you've obviously written lots about this, Hadley. Were you were you surprised by this, or is this just a latest part of a sort of ill-advised stupidity by a group that's supposed to be, you know, running charity shops and helping people in poor parts of the world? 
yeah, you'll be unsurprised to know, Matt, I have many opinions on this. Um, no, I was not particularly surprised by it. I guess I was a little surprised that Oxfam, a charity that exists to alleviate poverty, was making some video about uh, Pride Month. But really, that's not a surprise either. The Pride movement has been so uh, taken over by corpor corporations kind of doing their woke washing by planting their rainbow flags on social media. That is not particularly a surprise. And of course, Oxfam has a lot of woke washing it needs to do. It was only a few years ago that it emerged that its workers had used sex workers, including child sex workers in Haiti and Chad. Um, so they've gone from exploiting young women and girls sexually to now demonizing older women um, who just want to protect their sex-based rights. Um, Pride Month this year has been completely bananas, really, in terms from corporations, as we've seen various things on social media from banks, you know, kind of proudly posting videos about how they use drag queens, how some of their workers are drag queens, to others talking about the sexual dimorphism of various creatures under the sea. What any of that has to do with the rights of gay people is beyond me. Um, but I'm hoping that the extremes and the extreme stupidity of things like the Oxfam video will show people what um, columnists like myself and Janice have been writing for years, that there's this extreme misogyny underlining a lot of the gender ideology movement. And for Oxfam to go after J.K. Rowling in particular, there's this extraordinary irony. J.K. Rowling famously is one of the most generous people in the world when it comes to giving to charity. Uh, so for Oxfam to demonize her as some kind of ancient she-devil really shows how the gender ideology movement has exited the mainstream and exited any sense of proportion and logic that a video for Oxfam would demonize this famously generous and entirely commendable woman. Uh, I just don't know why these why they, they do it, um, uh, Oliver. There used to be a time, and sort of particularly charities, but businesses as well, wouldn't get involved in contentious issues because you're trying to raise money or sell your product. And it, every time that this happens, it always seems to backfire. Somebody's just texted in saying, I've just cancelled my £50 a month to Oxfam. I'm sure that wasn't the purpose of them. Somebody sitting down and coming up with this video. Yes, yeah, sometimes um, charities, um, non-governmental organisations overreach. Um, let's leave aside the, the issue, the very um, important issue that um, Hadley raised of um, Oxfam's conduct in, in Haiti, which I've, I've heard much about and I'm quite close to. Uh, a charity should certainly not be getting into a partial and partisan debate while engaging in um, slurs, which is what Oxfam has done in this case even if you could just about rationalise that the cartoon figure is not supposed to be the famed author J.K. Rowling, um, this character is wearing a badge with the acronym TERF. Now, um, Hadley is closer to the issue than I am, but I've never come across an instance of this term being used in a neutral way. It's not like a conventional acronym. Um, you can always tell when something is a slur if it is not used yeah. generally by the people to whom it is applied and the context in which it is used, which is of aggressive um, opposition. And it was completely inappropriate for Oxfam to engage in or, or to spread this sort of material. And its retraction is by no means uh, generous or even appropriate. It's, uh, it, it's really a scandalous thing to have done by a charity that has long since lost its way.
Yeah, but you should explain because for people who don't follow this whole debate, so TERF, the acronym TERF, stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, uh, which, as uh, Oliver was saying, is only ever used by people criticising those who they disagree with on the uh, on the trans issue. Uh, yeah, and they've now said, they've uh, it's sort of classic, well, no, we didn't, it's, it definitely wasn't uh, J.K. Rowley, but we have deleted it anyway. Um, yeah, you kind of suspect that Oxfam's lawyers got involved a little bit there. <laughs> yes, something that seemed a bit amusing in the office has suddenly taken on uh, uh, taken on legs. Well, from uh, from one ginger person in the news uh, to another, in a minute we're going to talk about, I love this, um, TV channels getting people who look a tiny bit like Prince Harry uh, to voice up what he's been saying in court. Uh, we've got our very own theatre cricket, Liddy, Libby Purvis is going to join us. There's been rolling coverage everywhere you look. Uh, in this uh, court case, uh, Prince Harry uh, taking the uh, publishers of the Daily Mirror to uh, court over uh, alleged uh, unlawful information gathering. Uh, the Times reported today he's been struggling to justify his phone hacking claims. Uh, he also accused uh, not just the press, but Rishi Sunak's government of hitting rock bottom. But... Uh, obviously, there are no cameras in the court. So both Sky News and GB News have decided to reenact Prince Harry's uh, statement and cross-examination with actors. But how good are they? Uh, we've still got uh, Hadley Freeman and uh, Oliver Camier. Let's bring in Libby Purvis, one of our regulars, regulars on the show, and also a uh, long-time theatre critic as well. Hi, Libby. Hello, hello. Have you been enjoying... Before we, We'll hear from some in a minute, but have you been enjoying the, the, the general spectacle? Um, yeah, if and but, I, you, you want if you want a, a, a critical review of the two, I have now got a, a detailed comparison. Do you want that? Very good. Yes. Yeah, so, so hang on. Let's yeah. have, let's have a listen. Yeah. I want to get your verdict. Uh, this is the GB News, uh, Prince Harry. Sunday Mirror, thirteenth January two thousand two. Show you sharing a joint with your friends and your father's response. Yes. Do you say that was obtained by phone hacking? Unlawful information gathering. I'm not sure how the two are separated. The palace accepted that this wasn't an invasion of privacy, but a matter of public interest. I've never smoked a joint in that pub or in my father's house. There's a difference between the public interest and what interests the public. <laughs> OK, and then this is the Sky News, Prince Harry. I believe that, again, as a child, every single one of these articles played an important role, a destructive role uh, in my growing up. To give any confirmation that I can specifically remember reading the articles at the time, I believe would be speculation. So go on then, Libby, your verdict. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're very different in the approach they've taken. The, the Sky one, there's a problem with the wrong moustache and beard for a start. <laughs> Uh, but what he's doing is the furrowed brow thing. And he's got a particularly high brow, this actor. And so he's furrowing it a great deal. But I think somebody has read that he learnt interrogation training in the army and he's using that to stay calm because he's very bland and there are a lot of these hand gestures. But of course, there's a sense there uh, that you're acting
having someone who yeah. is acting anyway, and they a bit overdo the hesitations. GB News, in a way, is more interesting uh, because um, they go for quite a lot of panning in on the eyes and on the bead <laughs> bracelet on the wrist. They're making more of a film of it, and they've got a chap who's doing a madly deep, 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 deep down voice, um, and he's also attempting a bit of what he thinks is a Harry accent. When he says pub, he actually says pib. He was in the pub. You heard that just now. And also he's given him a slight a slight lisp, a gathering. Um, he's sort of trying to say this This is a class. I'm representing somebody of a class. But neither of them. And we've, God, we've all looked at Prince Harry endlessly in motion and in stills and everywhere. Neither of them is at all convincing. <laughs> and uh, so you don't the... feel, why are we doing Why are they doing it? Why? I mean, the, just because there's, there's no cameras feeling that they um this might have been an idea that they both had yesterday lunchtime that was a sort of my hadley have you got a favorite of the two um i think definitely the sky news one it's less absurd but i think it makes sense in a way i mean the royal family exists for our entertainment um it doesn't actually even matter who's in the royal family they're just there to perform for us at this point so fine have some stand in for harry yeah, so yeah. we can enjoy the entertainment of him oliver your favorite I much enjoy. I much preferred the first one, the GB News one. We all have what linguists call an idiolect. That is a distinctive, unique, individual way of speaking. And if you're going to make a, a, a public interest story out of this rather uh, undignified um, uh, affair, um, give it some entertainment, give it some exaggeration. And that's, uh, that's plainly the way they've gone. I mean, it also occurs to me, this is probably the last time they'll ever do this, because the next time a big court case comes around like this, we'll have a, a, a sort of AI bot doing it. Um, <laughs> or a hologram, like Abba. Oliver Cam and Hadley Freeman there. And of course, you can read them in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Deputy PMQ's Unpacked. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. It's time for Deputy... Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Patrick Maguire. Yeah! Deputy PMQ's Unpacked with my deputy and yours, uh, Patrick Maguire. How are you? Deputy to a grateful nation, yeah, the to listeners to everywhere. the regional manager. How are you? I'm very glad to be here after a prolonged absence. It's very rare that I'm in Tim Shipman's chair these days. I can't work out... Yeah, because uh, maybe that... I was thinking maybe that means he's finished his book, but I know for a fact he hasn't. So you, normally he'd be bunking off. I do wonder whether the reason he's not here is because the last time he was here, two weeks ago... He owes you dinner. He owes me dinner. And he hasn't been heard or seen of since. You can't... You can't... Uh, you get a better class of... 
wager with me, Matt. <laughs> well, uh, I'm actually so... having dinner with James Murray tonight. Are there you? you go, yeah. Clang, clang. <laughs> uh, no, so two weeks ago, uh, Tim Shippen bet me that we wouldn't get through PMQs without Keir Starman mentioning Boris Johnson. And we did. And now he owes me dinner. So what do you think is going to happen today? What, what, what do you want a wage that's going to come up today? It's always difficult to tell with these two, though, isn't it? With Angela and Oliver. I, I bet you... That sorry, I was going to say I bet Angela Rayner mentions the fact that Rishi Sunak's in America. What a terrible wage that is! <laughs> That's like one to a million or something. Yeah, uh, I tell you what, let's have a listen because um, it's been a long time since Patrick's been here. It's been a long time since the lathe has been touched or otherwise. <laughs> so uh, we've got a very important statement from the Commons leader. Let's take a listen. Yeah! <laughs> right. Can I just make an announcement? I want to tell the House about the success last night of the House of Commons teams in the tug of war. We beat the House of Lords 4-0. So let us now start with questions to Deputy Prime Minister David Johnson. I'm really sorry. (laughs) There is a certain dignity to that office. There, There ought to be a certain dignity to that office. And c- come on, <laughs> come on! If you want to do that, put it on the House of Commons intranet. Yeah. Send a press release. He sends enough of them. But from the chair at Prime Minister's questions, can we not treat the legis- legislature of this country with the respect and dignity it deserves? Please, please. I think it's important that the Commons has beaten the House of Lords at four. Given that all the House of Lords are ninety, surely the House of Commons, surely a bunch of MPs should be able to beat the Lords in a game of tug of war. Tug of war. God, you know, if we see a few good obituaries in the Times over the coming week, that's presumably why. <laughs> but I mean, look, it just it just reinforces the idea. Sorry, not that anyone normal is watching this. Not no disrespect to our listeners. Hello to all three hundred and fourteen people on the YouTube. But channel. that just like underlines the fact that oh, you know, we all live here and it's all a great jolly. And actually, <laughs> it doesn't matter that we represent our constituents. It's actually we're just having a massive laugh. <laughs> Sorry. Probably get hauled wow. in before the speaker for that. Well, I'd like to make absolutely clear that the uh, the MP for Chorley and uh, Commons Speaker Lindsay Hall is a friend of the show, and all of the views held by Patrick McGrath are entirely the views of Patrick McGrath. Yes. Right. I'll, I'll say it again. <laughs> uh, good. So, are we ready? Have we got... Right, good. Uh, here we are, then. This is uh, PMQ... Deputy PMQ's unpacked. It's Oliver Dowden, Deputy Prime Minister, of course, up against... Uh, Angela Rayner, Deputy Leader of the Labour Party. So let's go live to the House of Commons. We'll take question number one from Angela Rayner. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Speaking of the last election, the Tory manifesto promised to end the abuse of the judicial review. How's it going? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I welcome the much shorter question from the Right Honourable Lady today. Let me just remind the Right Honourable Lady of a few facts about the COVID inquiry. We set up the COVID inquiry. We have provided it with more than 55,000 documents so far. We have given it all the financial resources it needs so that we can learn the lessons from the pandemic. But Mr Speaker, in Wales, they also had a pandemic. And what have the Labour-run Wales authorities done there? No independent inquiry in Wales. 
as ever, one rule for Labour and another for everyone else. Right, I feel like we've come in halfway through a conversation that someone else has had. That was definitely question number one, wasn't it? It was just a slightly weird one. So, Patrick, explain. Uh, the uh, abuse of judicial review was has gone too far, was what the Tories said. Uh, they actually said, and this is what the 2019 manifesto said, we will ensure that judicial review is available to protect the rights of the individuals against an overbearing state while ensuring that it is not abused to conduct politics by another means or to create needless delays. So what is Angela Rayner driving at? Well, Angela Rayner is highlighting that this was Dominic Raab's, you know, uh, peace be upon him, God bless him, rest in peace. <laughs> this was his big bugbear. He wanted to reform judicial review so that lefty lawyers and viewers on the YouTubes will see I'm doing scare quotes around that, <laughs> um, wouldn't be able to, as they say, conduct politics by another means, change government policy, for instance, stop flights to Rwanda. And that has been a long-term ambition of this government to reform judicial review, to narrow the scope of what you can judicially review. And now the government is judicially reviewing the COVID inquiry it itself set up to stop them having the unredacted WhatsApps of all and sundry who worked in government at the time. So there is a, an amusing contradiction there and Angela Rayner has put her finger <laughs> right on it. And uh, Oliver Down has replied with, yes, but Wales. Yeah. Which is a... Which is a hardy perennial. Yeah. You know, criticise the NHS, yes, but Wales. Yeah. Um, there has been a... Yeah, exactly. Well, let's go back. In, in a similar vote, it'll all be over in about 10 minutes if all the questions and answers are going to be that short. Let's go back to the House of Commons then. This is Angela Rayner, question two. Mr Speaker, he acts like it pretends that it's complicated, but it's simple. They set up the inquiry to get to the truth, then blocked that inquiry from getting the information that it asked for, and now they're taking it to court. I know he considers himself a man of the people, so using his vast knowledge of working-class Britain, does he think working people will thank him for spending hundreds of thousands of pounds of their money on loophole lawyers just so that the government can obstruct the COVID inquiry? Yeah. Yeah. Prime Minister. Well, we will provide the inquiry with each and every document related to COVID, including all internal discussions in any form as requested, while crucially protecting what is wholly and unambiguously irrelevant. Because essentially, the Right Honourable Lady is calling for years' worth of documents and messages between named individuals to be in scope. And that, Mr Speaker, could cover anything from civil servants' medical conditions to intimate details about their families. But I really will say to the Right Honourable Lady, I find it extraordinary that she should lecture us on value for money for the taxpayer. When I understand she has now purchased two pairs of noise-cancelling headphones on expenses. Now, I will be fair. I will be fair to the right honourable lady. If I had to attend shadow cabinet meetings, I think I'd want to tune them out too. <laughs> it's not a terrible joke, Oliver Downs. But the delivery joke. leaves yeah. much to be desired. And also, there was a certain amount of. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, um, oh, that's me, the side of me changing gear. Uh, th- so, um, her reference to him being a man of the people, you might not necessarily realise that. Well, it's interesting. He is probably the most working class man mm. on the exactly. tour for And so, uh, this was back here, the last time they did this, back in mid-May, uh, Oliver Dan said, I will say to you that this comprehensive schoolboy will not take any lectures from the opposition party about the lives of working people. So he's also just riling him up in a bit of sort of... Who's, who's the most working class? Who's the most working class? His dad works in a factory, his mum works in boots, Oliver Dowden. So, um, Do you know who else's dad works in a factory? Uh, oh, don't don't remind me. <laughs> uh, worked in a factory, owned a factory. Oh, What's the difference? You say, you say tomato, I say running a factory. Uh, do we learn a huge amount there? I mean, it, it, the government is digging its heels in on this and not handing over all of the WhatsApps. But... Most people in government seem to think they're going to lose this. Is yeah, that well, what? that's yeah, indeed, that's what George Freeman. Yeah. The moment that George Freeman, the science minister, the moment the judicial review in went on question time and said, "Well, look, of course we're probably going to lose, but it's a principle worth sticking up for." So the government is in a slightly surreal position of setting up an inquiry, refusing to disclose everything that inquiry is asked for and saying it's fully committed to full transparency. Obviously, something's going to have to give. Presumably, that'll be when they lose the judicial review. But in the meantime, obviously, that leaves them wide open to accusations that they're seeking to obstruct its work, particularly when Boris Johnson is revelling in being as as unhelpful as possible to the government. And indeed, individual ministers too. For instance, Caroline Dynage was on Times Radio last week, former health minister, now chair of the Culture Select Committee, saying, yeah, of course, I'll hand over my WhatsApp. So increasingly, the government position which Oliver Dowden is responsible for as Cabinet Office Minister, uh, as well as Deputy Prime Minister, leaves them increasingly isolated. In fact, have you heard the clip that I played earlier of Baroness Hallett and the uh, the government's lawyer um, uh, trying to set out the position? Um, uh, I've just put it... It's in, it's in the PMQ's... In the PMQ's like now. So this is, this is from the hearing yesterday, which sort of sums up her exasperation and the, uh, the barrister uh, uh, trying to set out the position. So, the Cabinet Office is in possession of Mr Johnson's notebooks, but because of the point that's going to judicial review, even though Mr Johnson himself says he would reveal them to the inquiry without redaction, the Cabinet Office is going to apply redactions to somebody else's material. Have I got that right? My lady, the the position is that the Cabinet Office is working out its position. (laughs) The position is the Cabinet Office working out its position. It's not a great place to be, is you it? You could lift that from a, you know, early episode of Yes Minister. Yeah. Um, and obviously Oliver Downing is the Minister of the Cabinet Office. So yeah, which means it's he's in a particular... Which is presumably why... Well, which is exactly why Angela Rayner has chosen to go on this subject. Yeah. It's something for which he is personally accountable. So he can't dodge it by saying, well, it's up to the Minister. Yes, totally. Yeah. Right, well, let's go back to it's that. Quite, it's quite shrewd, actually, not treating it as a you know, as a surrogate PMQs, but as a question to Oliver Dowden. Yeah, yeah. Because given Oliver Dowden is running the government. And there's more eyeballs on this than there are to Cabinet Office questions. Totally. Right, let's go. Let's know how you think it's going. Uh, the PM, Deputy PMQs rather than Patrick and I. Uh, uh, on the YouTube channel. Get on the YouTube's. Uh, post your comments. Uh, let's go back to the comments now. It's question number three from Andrew Riley. Can, can I just say that... Oh, no, it's Deputy not. Deputy Prime Minister was very good saying... Again. He, was welcoming short questions. I'd also welcome shorter answers. Yeah. And shorter interjections from the speaker would be nice too. 
Mr Speaker, all we're asking for is what the COVID inquiry has asked for. And across the world, COVID inquiries are well underway. While his government hides information and shells out public money on legal bills for the Oxbridge one, the former Prime Minister is now demanding another million to pay for his new lawyers. Now, I know the Honourable Gentleman and his former boss has fallen out, and maybe he wants to patch things up, but can he seriously say this is a good use of taxpayers' money? Deputy Prime Minister. If we want to talk about relationships between between different people, I don't think we need to search her WhatsApp messages to know that there's no communication between her and the leader of her party. And I will happily, happily stand up for our record on COVID. Because when she and her party were carping from the sidelines, calling for longer lockdowns, I was working as Culture Secretary to keep our football clubs running, to protect our theatres and museums and deliver the largest cultural recovery package in the Western world. That's the difference between her and me, Mr Speaker. While she was collecting titles, I was getting on with the job. It's good this. It's nice robust back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, short, you know, she's been she's been uh, sharper. I think you could argue that sometimes Starmer gets a bit waffly, uh, and Dowden's, you know, he's he's holding the government line, but he's got some decent lines to come back on. Yeah, some decent some decent gags. Um, the weakness with that answer, I think, is that he lent heavily on his personal record. Yeah. on COVID as culture secretary. Now, if you said to Rishi Sunak now, or even at the time, actually, when he was chancellor. Is the government getting everything right, particularly on the question of longer lockdowns? Rishi Sunak at the time, particularly in winter 2020, was saying, no, yeah, let's yeah. not lock down. Let's bring in this Swedish epidemiologist who tells us we don't have to lock down. Yeah. Rishi Sunak was a very forceful... And look, you can try and retrofit that on lockdown dates, as Oliver Dowden saying, was like, you know, we, we came out of lockdown earlier than Labour would have wanted us to. But I think it's quite a dangerous gambit for Rishi Sunak's government, given Rishi Sunak was opposed to much of the lockdown policy at the time, to come out and say we're really happy with how we handled lockdowns and COVID because we know he was one of the most forceful internal opponents of... But I suppose it's one of those things where, in the end, you just have to to hold your record. Because if you start trashing it, then you're doing the opposition's work for you. Um, It's not going down brilliantly well on on the YouTube channel. Matt says, 15% behind in the polls? Mention Angela Rayner's headphones. That'll do it. (laughs) But, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's decent knockabout stuff, I suppose. Uh, and people are enjoying your impressions. They're glad you're back doing your good, impressions. Good, good. I've never heard Patrick so ruffled, says Mike. Well, because I'm, I'm yeah. usually such a peaceable, yeah. mellow guy. The very mention of tug of war has set you off. Uh, right, let's go back to the House of Commons now then. Uh, this is just um, uh, Oliver Dowden saying there's no communication between Angela Rayner and Keir Starmer. Are things that bad? That's it- slightly overplayed, um, but I would say there is... As I've you know, write quite regularly in the Times, there's, there's definitely mutual suspicion between the two camps. Actually, I'd say it's more coming from Angela Rayner's direction. You know, there are certain people around Keir Starmer who say, in terms sort of obliquely, maybe Angela Rayner won't have her job. You know, the many, the many sort of, she won't be shadowing the cabinet office, she won't yeah. be the cabinet office minister. But I think mostly it's people around Angela Rayner, and Angela Rayner are paranoid 
about, about how she is on, viewed yeah. in the leader's office and that she is due for the sack or whatever. Those sort of briefings from various quarters make their way into the Times intermittently. Um, but obviously it's a gross exaggeration to say they never talk. Yeah. I think their relationship is in a much, much better place than it was two years ago when Oliver Dowden says she was defying the sack and collecting titles. Oh, very good. Uh, thank you for that, Patrick. Right, now we'll go back to the House of Commons. Question number four for Angela Wainer. Mr Speaker, I know for the last couple of years he's been trying to prep PM Prime Ministers for this, but these punchlines are dire. He really needs to go back to school himself. And speaking of school, thousands of children are missing from school. Absence has nearly doubled since before the pandemic. The Prime Minister says he's maxed out on his support for school pupils. But why did the government abandon its plans for a register of missing children? Yeah. Yeah. Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, well, on the specifics of the right honourable lady's question, that is not the case, and we continue to keep the policy under review. And what I would say is I am, I'm, I am very proud of this government's record on funding and support for schools. £4 billion more this year... Four billion pounds next year, and the result of all of that investment is we have the highest standards of reading in the entire Western world. What a contrast from when the party opposite were in power. That was a terrible segue. Can we just deal with that first of all? <laughs> Speaking of school... Your punchlines are not good. You need to go back to punchline <laughs> school. S speaking of schools... Yeah, neither of them are setting the bar particularly high in terms no. of free-flowing badinage here, are they? Um, but it, it, And it's a bit of a shit... I mean, I, I don't know why she's decided to leap onto education now, because... Yeah, it definitely felt that there was more life more, in that theme. Yeah, and, it, you know, broadening it out, tensions between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, tensions between Rishi Sunak and the Boris Johnson supporters. You know, where is the scope of the... You know, the fact it's going to be three... You know, if you believe the polls, uh, this COVID inquiry is going to report to Angela Rayner and Keir Starmer mm. uh, in government. So you'd have thought, yeah... Was this suddenly narrowing in what's happened to the register of missing children in schools? Seems. Look, perhaps you'll develop this. It's interesting. The register of missing children in schools, so-called ghost children, yeah. is a is work that's being done by think tanks aligned with the Conservative Party. So perhaps they're trying to punch bruises. You know, this is the Conservative Party's friends and sort of infrastructure of, you know, uh, policy wonks that is pointing out this problem, and they're exposing that the government is in fact doing very little about it. Ghost Children, he was a cover on The Spectator a while ago, a very evocative cover. Um, but yeah, let's see where she's going with this because it's not obvious as to why she would yeah, jettison a pretty punchy and timely and personally relevant line of yeah, questioning. Yeah. Uh, let's go back then. This is question number five from Angela Wainer. So there we have it, Mr Speaker. Thousands of children missing under review still. So let me ask him about another, uh, something else that's gone missing. The Public Accounts Committee this week revealed that the government's fraud increased fourfold, with ministers overseeing the loss of £21 billion of taxpayers' money in the last two years. Can he tell us how much of our money they expect to recover? Deputy Prime Minister. Well... Mr Speaker, we are working tirelessly to recover those funds and have made and we have made huge progress already. 
but again, if the party opposite wants to talk about wants to talk about good use of taxpayers' money, what do we have from the party opposite? Plans for an unfunded twenty-eight billion pound spending spree. And what would that do? Drive up borrowing, push up interest rates, adding a thousand pounds to everyone's mortgage. Mr Speaker, I know they're out of touch, but even she must realise that Britain cannot afford Labour. I mean, it's a bit jumping all over the place again, but I suppose this is more in uh, Oliver Dowden's area of responsibility. So this this report was a special report that came out earlier this week from the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, they say that, yeah, £21 billion in total over the, over the last two years uh, since the start of the pandemic. Uh, uh, this estimate, that's government's own estimates for fraud against the taxpayer. Uh, up £5.5 Um This is a big problem, isn't it? And it's the sort of thing... That uh, I think it's cut through, and you can see on an election poster. Yeah, exactly. It gets cut through, and it also. Oliver Dowden was talking about the twenty-eight billion, which I'll get to in just a second. But it gets to the heart of how Labour think they can answer tricky questions about their fiscal policy. You also hear this from shadow ministers too, as well as Angela Rayner. They say, "Look, the first thing we're going to do is stop wasting so much money to fraud." and incompetence. Uh, You hear that about welfare, you've just heard it about uh, Whitehall there. Uh, So there is a double, there's a double whammy there. It's about trying to pin waste on the Tories, but also saying, look, don't worry about higher taxes or spending cuts because we are going to save the money the Tories are wasting. To which Oliver Dowden obviously said, well, hang on, forget the 21 billion, forget the 28 billion. You're pledging to borrow every year for green investment, which has become the the hot-button issue the Labour Party doesn't quite have an answer to, so I'll be interested interested to see how Angela Rayner takes that yeah, on, yeah. because it's a big talking point and dividing line within the shadow cabinet. On working pensions alone, in this Public Accounts Committee report, it said that in 2021-22, apart from working pensions, they saw the highest level of benefit fraud in error since records began in 2005, as it relaxed controls during the pandemic to cope with new claims. It over, overpaid... And eye-watering, the committee says, £8.6 billion in benefits, £6.5 of which was due to fraud. And there's been this big complaint about, well, that's OK. That's what happened during the pandemic. Why aren't you trying to get this back? You know, and there was the government loans. And then you start getting on to the sort of PPE contracts and all that sort of stuff as well. And the government seems to have just sort of thrown its hand up in the air and said, oh, we can't be doing it, we're going to move on. Well, just think, welfare in particular, that's zero in on welfare. If you're John Ashworth, the Shadow Working Pension Secretary, that's manna from heaven. Because you can doubly say... You don't have to. You don't sound, you know, for better or worse, like you're on the side of welfare claimants. Not making a value judgment about that. I'm just saying that's yeah, something yeah. that the Labour Party are aware that they will be pilloried for, uh, and that's what John Ashford doesn't want to sound like. Uh, or he can say, look, we want a more humane welfare system, but also the Tories are doing badly on fraud. You know, it allows him to hit every note yeah, he would yeah, want yeah. to hit, uh, and it, especially when Oliver Dowden's sort of. Line is, well, well, we might get around to it at some we point. We might get around to it at some point. Right, well, here we go then. This is uh, rounding this up. This is question number six from uh, Angela Wainer. Mr Speaker, Britain can't afford any more of the Conservatives. Yes! And he seems to have lost count. The answer is a quarter. Only a quarter of the billions of pounds of taxpayers' money lost to fraud is expected to be clawed back. If this government can't get the public money back 
they can't be trusted with anything else. It's become a pattern of behaviour from the Conservatives. An inquiry missing the evidence, schools missing their pupils, taxpayers missing their money and ministers missing in action. And all the while, working people pay the price for their mistakes. This week, the Public Accounts Committee also warned that this epic fraud and waste could happen all over again due to the ministers living in denial of the facts. If his government can't admit the truth, then how on earth can they learn the lessons? Deputy Prime Minister. Well, I would say to the right and lady, we're actually putting more resources in throughout this year to tackle fraud and error, and we continue to make real progress with it. But again, it's, it's quite extraordinary from the, from, the, from the party opposite. While we are working to drive down inflation and energy bills, what's, what's the Right Honourable Lady doing? Receiving £10,000 from Just Stop Oil backers. Adopting their policies, backing protesters, blocking new production and forcing us to import more foreign oil and gas. Do you know what? For once, Mr Speaker, I find myself in agreement with the GMB union. What did they say? It's naive, lacks intellectual rigour and could decimate communities, just like Labour. You can see why generations of Conservative leaders have valued Oliver Dowden as a backroom presence for preparing for PMQs. Because if you read those exchanges, yeah, yeah, yeah. you would think, well, as a, so they're all internally consistent and there are lots of good rejoinders and gags. But God, the delivery is just... It's like... <laughs> I was just sitting here thinking, because he, well, they're both ginger, actually. Ginger's across the dispatch box. Uh, if, he, if he got an orange pen and drew a beard on, he could be a Prince Harry impersonator for GB News. <laughs> That's a wood, wooden delivery. Um, uh, we, well, we got, we got the explanation as to why Angela Rayner was all over the place, because she decided to lapse off the word missing. Yeah, it's interesting. Missing children, missing money, ministers missing in action. I thought the thread there was going to be waste or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, wasting money on challenging the COVID inquiry's decision, wasting money on, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't great. It wasn't pulled together with much aplomb. And, and the line, you know, by the time you get to the sixth question, it should be really obvious really what you're trying to do. Going, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was sort of an afterthought. You know, there, there's a consistency there, and you can see the notes Labour are trying to hit. Um, but again, similarly, the execution was... The execution was poor. Yeah, it wasn't... Uh, people are not loving it on the... Um, Geez, I can't bear much more of this, says so Madge. Slightly low energy, the entire affair. Uh, yeah, which is... A, I think it's just a surprise. Rainer normally's... You know, given what she had to go at, if you're going to go at Boris... Jo- you've got Boris Johnson, COVID, government wasting money, you know, Rishi Sunak's out of the country. There's plenty there to... You wish Sunak, why didn't we make a joke about how he can't even throw a ball? Well, let's just sit and think about that. Quiet. We should. Yeah. <laughs> Until Angela Rayner comes up with an answer, yeah. we're going to sit here in silence. We are going to do the best of the rest with Laura Spirit, who joins us in the studio. What have you been keeping out for, Laura? Hi, Patrick. Um, I mean, not a particularly lively best of the rest today, but quite a few questions uh, orientated around the theme of care, given it's the UK 
Carers Weeks. We had one from Andrea Ledson. We had one from Catherine West. Hi, Matt. Sorry, Matt Chorley has just rejoined us in the studio. <laughs> well, I'm going to blame the team. <laughs> We were having a, what can we describe as a production meeting. Hey, it's a good job I'm, uh, I'm a consummate professional. Well, it's been the day of deputies, because it's been Oliver, uh, Oliver Dan and Angela Wayne, so you've had a little bit of standing in. That's very nice. Well, look, well yeah, there you go. And I, like, I like to think I handle that with a plum. Yeah, anyway, think... Lara was just saying how it's not been a vintage. She's <laughs> uh, doing that again. You need to talk it up. Yeah, Matt says I need Matt says I need to ahead of my appraisal talk up deputy PMQs. I mean, it was there. There were some interesting questions. I was just saying it's um, it's UK Carers Week. There are a number of them. The most interesting that we'll play probably from Ed Davey, who um, quite recently actually has started talking very openly about his own kind of personal experience with his caring responsibilities mm. and his own family and his own history. Uh, so this is an interesting uh, question, interesting response. And I think we'll have this one first, if possible. But I think we might actually have to have another one first. Which will be Mari Black, if that's one. Mari what, Black what have we got then? first? Who Mar have we got? Oh, we have got Ed Davey. We have got Ed Davey. Brilliant. There we are. Brilliant. That's what everyone's saying. Let's take a listen. Speaker, yesterday I met Karen. Karen is a carer for her husband, Alan, who has Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia. Karen told me how hard it is to get people with power just to listen to her. Like so many carers, Karen feels her caring work just isn't valued. At times, she's wanted to give up, but knows she must carry on because of her husband. Mr Speaker, remarkable carers like Karen save the government more than the entire NHS budget. So will the government finally recognise the value of Britain's family carers and not just pay tribute to them, but give them the financial and practical support they deserve? Deputy Prime Minister. Well, of course I would like to join the Right Honourable Gentleman in paying tribute to, to Karen and to hard-working, unpaid carers <coughs> up and down the country. And I know the Right Honourable Gentleman speaks from personal experience about this as well. We have provided £2.3 billion worth of support for social care, an additional £25 million committed to putting people at the heart of care in the Heart of Care white paper, and £327 million is also committed to the Better Care Fund. Alberta cost. You're right. Ed Davies sort of uh, has talked about this before. Interestingly, because I was just trying to look this up, the government held a, a carer's reception last night um, in Downing Street, apparently, uh, with the Minister for Care rather than with the Prime Minister. So there's, there's clearly a sort of shift there, a sort of recognition from the government. But obviously, you know, Ed Davey, partly because of his own personal experience, but there were so many people involved in this, which politicians just don't normally talk about. Yeah, I think one of the uh, interesting things that Ed Davey said there was that unpaid carers saved the government more than the entire NHS yeah. budget. That's really astonishing. Um, so I think you will hear a lot more from Ed Davey on that, because actually it seems he gave a Guardian interview where he spoke much more openly about the impact that yeah, his yeah. multiple uh, caring responsibilities have had uh, on his life and on the way that he sees uh, the future of the health service. So I think you will hear more from him and others on that on that question. Should I do the second one? Yes, but well, the good news is, for Maui Black fans, we have now got Maui Black. Is that what we want? Fantastic, yeah. We do have a lot of Maui Black stands who, uh, <laughs> who listen to the show. So she uh, asked two questions. Obviously, she's standing in uh, as Deputy uh, SMP, Westminster Leader, and um, a spokesperson, she asked a question about the government's economic record, um, but I thought Oliver Dadman's response uh, was a little bit interesting, partly because it was uh, slightly curt uh, and very quick, and I think, I mean, just sort of indicated that well, he wasn't was actually particularly bothered. Uh, well, after he was told off about his long answers by Patrick's mate, Lindsay Hoyle. Yeah, and I think um, also just this is just the response that the government have now to any question on finances from the SNP, as they just say, we're not going to take a lecture on profligacy from, does from he the SNP. Does he mention the camper van? He doesn't, but I mean, you know, it's implicit. And <laughs> it's really like thankfully. Very good. Uh, let's take a listen. 
Government plans, this government plans to cut taxes for the richest, spend £6 billion imprisoning people fleeing war and persecution, yeah, yeah. and has lost £21 billion to government fraud, fraud throughout this pandemic. Is the view from the Prime Minister's luxury helicopter so skewed that during a cost of living crisis yeah, yeah. he thinks this Absolutely. is what people's priorities are? I'm, I'm going to take no lectures on profligacy from the from, from the SNP. And actually, what what is it that this government has done? We have provided record increases to the personal allowance, meaning that a person working full time on the minimum wage has seen a thousand pound reduction in their tax. No, was that it? That's it. That's that's where he stops. <laughs> it's a very sharp exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just noticed that uh, Jeremy Hunt just sitting with the same sort of half smile on his face the whole time through that, like that, where he's a sort of AI <laughs> bot version of a of a of a cabinet minister. Um, yeah. Uh, good. Is there more? There's one more. Is there? If I may. Oh, thank goodness, um, love. From. <laughs> Is this one any better? From it, well, I think it's interesting. It's, okay. it's from Flick Drummond, who we've probably heard the most about in the last better part of a decade that she's actually been in Parliament from uh, losing out on a parliamentary seat to Swella Braverman oh, in, yes. um, in that reselection. Go but on, go on, hang on. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Patrick wants to no, share. No, no, sorry, I'll let Laura class. finish her point because no, it's a slightly separate, separate point. <laughs> Okay. Not um, not related to the. Just sit um, still. Sorry, sorry. Sit still. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is an appropriate uh, rejoinder, actually, because this is about school children. Um, she has got this ten minute rule bill about the eighty. Talking of schools. Talking of schools. <laughs> 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 Such a silly moon today. Of the eighty one thousand children who are missing from the school register, many of them who've disappeared. Um, these so called ghost children, um, and nobody can answer the question of how many of these are not in school, how many of these yeah, are being yeah. at home schools. So there's a big worry about them. Uh, and she asked the government to back that rule bill, and I think Oliver Dowden's response makes clear that while the Education Secretary is concerned about this, I'm not quite sure they've alighted yet on a full response about what they're going to do about it. OK, let's take a listen. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. And we're all concerned about the 81,000 children that are not in the school register and under the term home educated. And no one, not local authorities or schools, can honestly answer the question how many children are not in school. Therefore, how can we know that every child is safe and suitably educated? These children are out of sight and out of mind. The Secretary of State for Education has said that this is one of her priorities, as had the Education Select Committee. So can I ask my right honourable friend to expedite my 10-minute rule bill to place a duty on local authorities to maintain a register of children who are not in school so that we can ensure that every child is visible, safe, suitably educated and receiving the support to enable them to thrive? Mr Speaker, we do want to ensure that all children are safe and have access to an, an excellent education. And of course, uh, local authorities must seek to identify children missing in their area and ensure that they are safe. The Department for Education continues to undertake work to support swifter identification and greater support of children missing in education. And what's interesting about that is that when Angela Rayner brought up missing children, uh, Oliver Dowden gave her, I'm going to take no lectures. 
uh, when a Tory MP brings <laughs> up exactly the same issue, suddenly he's much more engaged. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. And I was just reading now that 140,000 children are classed as severely absent, which since the pandemic is up 134. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think this is an issue that will be going away. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, and it's, it's also interesting that the government's now set, apparently saying they're going to support a backbench. Because it seems to be the only way to get anything done these days is a very narrow backbench bill, which mm. which can address these um. Uh, these small things. Yes, Patrick. <laughs> Grant Tucker. Yes. Sometime friend of the show yeah. and of Times Newspapers, sorry, Times Media Limited, um, <laughs> asks an interesting question on YouTube. He says, is there any rule that Keir Starmer can't do PMQs when Rishi Sunak is away or is it just convention? I note the SNP used their deputy, but the Lib Dems never put up their deputy. Now, on the second point, I think that's because Ed Davey gets a question every six weeks, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's... it's all done uh, in sort of pro rata number of MPs. Yeah, exactly. Whereas... Uh, well, it is. Whereas the SNP have <laughs> a standing obligation. But I'd be very interested in whether that is a formal thing or whether it's just uh, out of respect for the Prime Minister or, or whatever. Because, it's, you know, it's like when Keir Starmer responds to the budget, for instance. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if any constitutional experts are li- it, yeah. listening. I think please it's, I get think it's probably just a convention. Because I I think uh, when David Cameron was away as leader of the opposition, I think the deputies, you know, Gordon Brown, or actually, no, maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking of when David Cameron's son died, and I think they just suspended. They didn't do PMQ. Yeah, they did, did some very Gordon short tributes. tributes. So I'm just trying to think of a time when the leader of the opposition has been away. Do you ever get their deputy taking on the Prime Minister? I feel like might, that might have happened once, but I suspect did Ed, did Ed Miliband ask questions of the Prime Minister when he stood in for Keir Starmer at the last minute that time? Yes, he did. So there you go. Yeah, because that was all during the COVID days, it wasn't was, it? It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. uh, that, that actually had COVID as well. Was that what it was? Yes, she did. They'd all caught COVID from Rachel Reeves or something. <laughs> I'm not one to gossip, as you know. Um, uh, someone's been in touch ahead of your appraisal, Lara. Nick says, some feedback for Lara's appraisal. Lara Spirit's political commentary knocks Chorley's into a cocked hat. <laughs> I quite like, there was one friendly listener who used a very lovely smiley huggy emoji, which made me feel safe and loved ahead of this afternoon's showdown. So thank you to them. Oh, there we are. It's a big afternoon ahead uh, after the show today. Both, I'm giving both Patrick and Lara their appraisals, so... Do let me know. And I respect the confidentiality of the process. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you very much. So I shan't be talking about it on air. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Do let us know what you think. You can tweet me at Matt Chorley or at Times Red Box. Email me Matt at Times.radio or post a review wherever you listen to your podcast. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.